You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. We're in the same city, Kyla. Yes. But here we are once again, not together to record the podcast. I'm mm-hmm. in the office. You're working from home. Yeah. I don't want to be around any people right now. I understand that. Oh, I won't. Um, yeah, I'm just a little, little overwhelmed this week. Very busy week. You're uh, at Court of Appeal in the middle of the week. That always seems to take much out of you. Yes. Yes, it does. But you survived and we'll see, you know, be optimistic about the results, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. It's, it'll be an, it's an interesting case. Uh, it's a very narrow legal question, but it's a significant legal question that could have the potential to impact tons of cases that are currently before the courts in various stages and future cases and decisions that prosecutors make in future cases. So, Something tells me that win or lose, you're going to the Supreme Court of Canada on this one. Yeah. I was thinking it's been a long time since you've been in Ottawa. Yeah, I mean, I, I could, I, I could, I could not. Hard to say, but I don't want to talk about the case I did in the court of appeal because a, I don't want to jinx nothing, and b, uh, we don't have a decision yet. Um, so Man, we, I'm, not, I'm not talk, I'm not talking about it for that purpose. I was speaking of it because of your general overwhelmedness. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it's a, it, like I said, it's a big case, and that's not you. Know, it's not the only thing. I've had uh, multiple court hearings, IRPs, traffic tickets. Um, yeah, it's just been nonstop all week. Yep. Anyway. Well, we're at, we're at the end now. The weekend is almost upon us, and we mm-hmm. have things to talk about. Yes. So what we should talk about is this very interesting Court of Appeal decision, speaking of the Court of Appeal, Related to ICBC. And I don't know if you remember, Paul, but many years ago, you and I had actually talked about this case. This was back. Yes, we did. So this was back when ICBC had an employee who got in trouble for breaching the privacy rights of ICBC customers because the employee was inappropriately accessing personal information of customers through the ICBC database and then selling information that linked license plates to home addresses. I do remember that. Yes. So, And I mean, it was obviously some like very nefarious criminal purpose because what's come out in the Court of Appeal decision that I don't think that we heard about in the Supreme Court decision was that the people whose information was was revealed, they were attacked, their homes were vandalized, there were arsons um, and other types of, of like serious uh, violence towards them. 
Yeah, significant. Um, frightening to see that this is what can happen, uh, but it's British Columbia. Um, it's a wild and crazy place to live. Yes. So ICBC was sued by, um, I guess, a person who had his um, uh, had his uh, sort of information um, compromised. Uh-huh. And as a result of that lawsuit, they were actually ordered to pay damages under the Privacy Act, even though there was no sort of like specific um, privacy related violations that could be linked to the damage that individual people suffered. They were still assessed essentially like a like a general damage. Yeah. And this is because under the Privacy Act in B.C., there is a a special tort created for violating somebody's privacy rights that um, the Privacy Act says that it's a tort actionable without proof of damage for a person willfully and without claim of right to violate the privacy of another. And the nature and degree to which a person uh, is entitled to privacy um, is a matter that's reasonable in the circumstances, uh, giving due regard to the lawful interests of others. And the court has to determine uh, the nature, incident, and occasion of the act or conduct uh, and uh, any other relationship between the parties before determining whether a person has essentially committed this tort under the Privacy Act. Yes. Uh, and no, I mean, that's, that's all actually fairly clear. Um, my surprise is that, that ICBC was pushing back from this. Well, ICBC's argument at the court of appeal was essentially, look like there was a bad apple in our bunch, but we're not liable because they violated the rules and access this information unlawfully. Why should we have to pay? We're not the ones who committed the tort. The real person who committed the tort is our employee who was was bad. Well, and of course, the problem with that is, I mean, it's terrible that you're an employer and you face this risk of having employees that do bad things. If you <laughs> if you can do everything to try and stop them, you can't fire them, basically. You've got to only pay them out. Um if you have that suspicion that that's going on, even if you can gather that evidence, chances are you're not going to be able to establish it for the court if they'd fired that person earlier on. Um, and then at the same time, you know, you can't control your employee, but you're responsible for your employees generally. And this is a person that you've given access to this information. The other argument that I made on the appeal was that they weren't liable because the information, people's names, and addresses was not actually private anyway. Oh, it's private. Oh, absolutely. It's private because it's something you can't just get. Yeah. Well, they said, they said people give their name and address to other people all the time. So it's not really private information. (laughs) Like I, 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 yes, I give my name and address to people. Sometimes there's other people. I, I don't want to give it to. Yeah, it's like right. the very like, operation of privacy rights is your ability to control who gets private information about you. Perfect example. There was somebody trying to get in touch with me in the last couple of days, and I was just so glad that the office didn't like hand out my cell number, and we don't. Um, 
you know, because it's, that's my, my private number. I only answer it if you're calling or a couple other people and that's it. I was just laughing because you don't answer it if I call. <laughs> well, I try. And I'd look, I'd be well, trying to call you and you say, oh, I didn't even notice. Well, it's not, uh, oops. Um, anyway, point is, I don't know how you could, how you could argue that this is not something that's private because it's only available you know they're getting it through that system the fact is it was a breach of of their information that icbc maintains yep to get it yep icbc also collects that information in um like a manner that is um like related to uh um related to the privacy act right like they're all of their a collection of information and disclosure of information is always governed by the freedom of information and protection of privacy act they're a public body yep yep exactly so, i think you can probably imagine from our answers listeners how the Court of Appeal ruled on this. Well, it's not that the Court of Appeal agrees with us. Often, they but they wouldn't miss they didn't miss case. They do hear. ICBC uh was found to be liable um in tort, both um uh both as like the vicarious liability of the employer as well as um for their specific um their specific issue of uh, violating the Privacy Act. So the court determined that um, the the trial judge who awarded damages to um, the class of people who were suing, um, the the trial judge uh, was not wrong in finding that ICBC um, was entitled to liability in the circumstances of this case. And they talk about um, uh, charter and not entitled not entitled was liable you said was entitled to liability but yes sorry entitled to be found liable yeah i guess okay anyway but it was also like in in part because the circumstances that led to icbc allowing this to happen was that they really weren't at the time doing anything to preventing it um that uh, it sort of concludes at what, paragraph 119 um that uh what a reasonable expectation of privacy is is a question of fact so there was no palpable and overriding error the very high standard by characterizing it as a question of fact to show that these people didn't have a privacy interest in the facts on that information that the expectation of uh personal information would not be used except for legitimate ICDC operational purposes was reasonable and that the employee who accessed the information was not doing it for legitimate ICDC uh, purposes in circumstances where ultimately she, and I believe she was found guilty of this after being criminally charged, sold the information um, for a criminal purpose um, and so there was a breach of the Privacy Act and ICBC just didn't do enough to stop their employees from acting maliciously. And they're just like, don't. But don't is not good enough. You actually have to put systems in place to keep them from doing it. 
Yeah. I mean, I got a lot of, a lot of sympathy for ICBC here. It's just such a horrible case. Well, ICBC was trying to essentially say that their involvement in this was not willful um, because they weren't the ones who were involved in, in the criminal activity. And it has to be there is a defense under the Privacy Act. And the Court of Appeal analyzes this. Um, there's a defense under the Privacy Act where if the breach of privacy is not willful or without claim of right, that a person's liability is limited in scope. And there are additional defenses that are provided in the circumstances. Um, but the problem was that ICBC couldn't identify an error in the analysis that, because this is an appellate case, couldn't identify an yeah. error analysis where they, they didn't, you know, th their employee was vicariously liable because she was an employee. So then the court gets into this damages question, because the other thing that the ICBC has to pay uh, as a result of this was damages. And ICBC yeah. said, well, hey, wait a minute, we shouldn't have to pay damages because, uh, you know, there should be individual proof of, of damages. Well, if you remember... ICBC doesn't like to write checks. Yeah. yeah. Since when? <laughs> uh, if you remember, Paul, under the... Um, under the provisions of uh, the Privacy Act that I quoted at the beginning of this discussion, it doesn't matter that you prove damages. It's an actionable sh uh, actionable tort without proof of damages. So you, yes. can, right. yeah. you can get financial compensation on like a nominal or notional basis without mm -hmm. proof of suffer suffered anything. Mm -hmm. And so the court, you say, hmm. What's the meaning? Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I just see, I see where you're going. Yeah, the court says no, like there's no barrier to, uh, to collecting damages here. There doesn't have to be a determination of what each individual loss was. Um, plus, it's a class proceeding. So you're not looking at, at um, individual loss. Now, paragraph 167 of the Court of Appeals judgment, the court says, um, the statutory tort is actionable per se, meaning without requiring proof of factual of actual harm. The law presumes some damage will flow from the mere invasion of privacy without proof of actual pecuniary loss. The statutory tort of breach of privacy serves a public purpose in encouraging persons to respect privacy of others and provides accountability if they do not by way of general damages claims. So there you go. ICBC yep. has to Dam pay. Damages no matter what. I guess ICBC was dealing with a statute they're not accustomed to dealing with. And now they got to write a check. Now they got to write well, a check. Well, you know, when you're thinking about um, sort of the moral position there, um, ICBC, big company, deep pockets, um, then there's a bunch of little people who were badly injured. I think that's probably as uh, um, as far as you have to go in the analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, and reasonable steps they could have taken, but you have no idea. And you know, you know, I feel for ICBC because you have no idea if an employee's stealing from you until you find out what they stole. <laughs> right? Like it's impossible in a business to know everything that's that's there, and to know that a person's like somehow accessing data. I guess you have to put that. Put it in your software, but you know people can access data 
for legitimate reasons during the course of their work, and you don't know whether or not it's legitimate or not legitimate. Mm-hmm. And you don't have an, a, a red, big red alarm bell going off when you think somebody maybe accessed some illegitimate information. I mean, ultimately, I, I'm sympathetic to ICBC that this should be falling on the individual who, who caused the damage and, you know, benefited from it. Um, of course, nobody ever has any sympathy for ICBC. Poor old ICBC. Government monopoly insurer has to pay. I know, it's so hard. They didn't do enough to protect people from being victims of actual serious crime. I don't know. I think sometimes the the uh, expectation of the court is unrealistic. Um, you know, I I understand that if I was on the court, I would want to make sure that these people were properly compensated for the injury they suffered. But at the same time, like I I think sometimes we've gone way too far in our society in uh, in suggesting that somebody else is the one who's wrong or the wrong that an individual committed. Right, that your employee did something that they knew damn well they weren't supposed to do and they did it in a manner to be surreptitious to in order to uh to to do it in the sneakiest manner to try and evade um being caught um you know it's it's i i just see the slippery slope here and i think we're well down the slippery slope at this point you know you can't invade your your employees privacy by asking to look in their personal email or to look in their bag or to, you know, checking some manner or another on their phone, whether or not they recorded some information mm-hmm. out of your, out of your office or your insurance company or what have you. So you can't even, you don't have the investigative tools yourself to be able to investigate it. And then there's this exp- just a- expectation that you've set something up. Well, you could set up all the, the uh, steps that you possibly could, and clever people will still find some way to get around it. And you'll be sitting there after the fact going, Jesus, we didn't think of that. Why? Because people who steal think about stealing all day long, whereas the rest of us are just thinking about trying to, you know, do our job to serve our clients or provide a serve, you know, issue, the, 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 produce and manufacture and distribute the product or whatever it is, right? Um. I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm sympathetic with the people uh, who suffered the injury. I've got no sympathy for the employee who was stealing. Uh, and uh, I've got some sympathy for ICBC. And I worry, uh, you know, as a business owner, uh, that uh, that this is not a great precedent in the long term because it's impossible to control everything. And you collect so much information about people these days. Um, and we're required to collect all this information. And of course, you know, we do all the same things as other law firms do to try and protect it, but there's limits to what you can do. Okay. Well, moving on to our next topic, I wanted to talk about driving without due care and detention. And I know you're thinking, oh, Kylie, you want to talk about this BC provincial court sentencing case. No, no, no. That's not the one. There is an appeal on driving without due care and attention that came out today. Very interesting case. And it has to do with a defense to driving without due care and attention that ultimately was unsuccessful. So this is the case of Gray. And Mr. Gray was given a ticket um, in uh, Bologna, I think, for driving without due care and attention. 
Um, it was essentially uh, a situation where Mr. Gray was driving down the highway on a two-lane highway, and he moved onto the left shoulder, which I guess was wide enough for his vehicle, um, outside of the dedicated two lanes, passing the other two vehicles, and then back in to the lane of traffic, at which point he was observed, stopped, and ticketed by the officer for driving without due care and attention, passing on the left in an unsafe manner, um, and uh, also crossing a solid or broken uh, line contrary to Section 155 of Motor Vehicle Act. So unsafe lane change. Um, and Mr. Gray essentially said two different explanations at the time that he was pulled over. So first, when the officer pulled him over, he said that the vehicle in uh, to his immediate right, so the vehicle in the left passing lane, was driving slowly, so he passed it, which doesn't make what he did lawful, but in any event. After this, uh, he after he gets served the ticket, he then says that one of these two vehicles pulled out in front of him and so he had to move further left in order to go around it to avoid a to avoid a collision. That could be a defense. Could be a defense. Interesting defense. And the necessity defense. The, nobody's we're not expected to be perfect as drivers. Sometimes we make a judgment mistake. Well, it's also not a necessity defense because remember this is driving without due care and attention. So if he demonstrates that he exercised reasonable care. He was paying attention. Paying attention. He was reasonably careful and attentive. Then he has a defense. Yeah. Um, or I guess if the crown fails to prove that he wasn't, is the better way of saying it. Yeah, it's kind of hard there to figure out who's the it's burden that it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he was found guilty. Uh, the judicial justice essentially um, determined that that the facts which were undisputed about where his vehicle was had occurred. Um, and then the judicial justice um, quoted a number of cases about driving without due care and attention. And, and you know, the Crown has to establish that the manner of driving departs from the custom sober behavior of a reasonable man. Um, and it's open to the accused to avoid liability by proving that he took all reasonable care. And so she considers his explanations that he gave to the officer and more importantly the second one which was his defense which he also raised at trial and he had his passenger as well testify who happened to be his wife and she said i struggle somewhat with mr gray's explanation about it being necessary for him to go into the median there would have been other options for mr gray other than going into the meridian there was no evidence that he sounded his horn there's no evidence as to why the slowing vehicle moved into his lane i would I take issue with that because you can't explain the motive of another person. Um, but yeah, and also like the the expectation that people are going to respond perfectly in those circumstances too. Mm -hmm. And she seizes upon the fact that he gave two different explanations to the officer and says, "So he provided two choices that he had to the officer, but he chose to pass as opposed to applying his brakes." Um. And she says, I find Mr. Grace driving into the Meridian was not that of a reasonable and prudent person in the circumstances. He had other options available to him, including sounding his horn and applying his brakes. 
By driving out uh, into the meridian, Mr. Gray drove into the area of the roadway that is not for travel, but a divider between the two directions of travel, and uh, ultimately found him uh, uh, guilty of driving without due care and attention, but then acquitted him on the uh, crossing a solid line and unsafe pass because the manner of his driving incorporated that those actions, and so double jeopardy he was he was acquitted of those well that makes sense i'm glad to see the double jeopardy acquittal because although we know that it exists we have trouble explaining it to police officers now you had mentioned necessity and the court on appeal on mr gray's appeal says well i do have some trouble with the the judicial justice characterizing this as a necessity defense um because it isn't a defense that is required in the circumstances, right? Like necessity would apply to an absolute liability offense, but driving without due care and attention is strict liability. So there's a defense of due diligence that's allowed. Um, so he analyzes uh, whether, um, you know, due diligence was essentially uh, available. Um, he says that it didn't really matter because even though the judge was saying, or the judicial justice was saying that it was necessity, what she was really looking at was due diligence. And she ended up in the right place, even though her analysis that got her there was um, maybe focused on the wrong defense. It was that there were other options reasonably available to him, which well, on either necessity or due diligence would not meet the burden to establish that defense. Yeah, I, I... correct. Okay, but I still don't, I don't like the idea of rejecting somebody's evidence on that. Just assuming that there is a, a better decision they could have made and therefore, <laughs> therefore they're, they're, they're committing the offense because they didn't choose what the court thinks would be a better decision. Yeah. And, uh, there's a lot of discussion, um, in the case of how Mr. Gray's evidence was uncontradicted that, you know, he had to take this essentially evasive maneuver and it was supported by the testimony of Miss Miss Kirby. And the judge says in paragraph 31, the mere fact that the evidence was uncontradicted does not mean that the judicial justice was bound to accept it. The judicial justice had the discretion at the trial fact to accept some, all or none of the testimony of any of the witnesses who gave evidence at trial. That's WD. And he says there's, of course, special rules for credibility assessment in relation to the testimony of the accused, WD. Um, but in the context of a strict liability offense with a due diligence defense, these principles only apply insofar as the accused testimony addresses the actus reus on which the Crown bears the burden of proof. In this case, the accused did not really dispute the actus reus. His evidence went mostly to the issue of due diligence on which he bore the burden of proof. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I have no issue with that. She didn't. Uh, she didn't believe his uh, version of events. So uh, oh. just because he doesn't, he testifies about something that's not contradicted by the police officer doesn't mean that it's accepted. Exactly. Um, you know, it's the, the the police officer testifies, and somebody else comes and testifies and says something completely different. You know yes. that that doesn't doesn't speak necessarily of the facts of the police officer 
put out doesn't mean that you have to accept it just because it's the only version before the court. Yeah. And uh, the court also pointed out that at one point in his testimony, he actually suggested that maybe he could have slammed on the brakes, but then stopped himself and never explained why that was not a reasonable course of action. So he didn't lead the evidence necessary to make out his defense. Yeah, I, 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 I would have acquitted on that because I, I, I don't think, I don't see why it's necessary for to, him to explain every millisecond of his thinking if he was trying to reasonably respond to a circumstance he was in. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not happy about the conviction. I'm except the analysis of the, uh, well, I understand the analysis of the provincial court level. I accept the analysis of the Supreme Court level, but I still don't see why we are holding people to a perfection standard. Um, and it's an imagined perfection, uh, you know, of a, of a judge who's hearing it on review or a judge who's hearing the trial. Yeah. Right. I don't disagree with you, but I mean, that's the, <laughs> That's the, the decision as it's come out. So it's interesting. Um, uh, things to keep in mind when you're defending a driving without due care and attention case. Um, well, I'm glad that the uh, I'm glad that the uh, that the other charges were dropped. It would have just been easy if it had been just a disobey traffic control device. That would have been the appropriate thing in my view. But in any event, well, we move on. Yes. We move on. We we move on to take a moment with a McGracken moment. Ladies and gentlemen, let loose the law and justice. Kraken! Eric McGracken! Welcome to the McGracken Moment. Let's have a quick word about medical cannabis and ICBC claims. So say you get smashed up in a car crash, whether you're at fault or not, and you have injuries, and your doctor prescribes medical cannabis because it's something that helps you with your pain or otherwise helps you in the rehab of the injuries. Can you make ICBC pay for that medical cannabis? Well, the answer is sometimes. Not always yes, not always no, but sometimes. If you can prove that this is a medically necessary treatment and you have all of the right medical support, you can get ICBC to pay for medical cannabis in some circumstances. Now, our firm's been dealing with such so, some of these claims um, over the years. And so whether it's under the old Part 7 system or now they call it enhanced care, the legal analysis is basically the same. But what we've done is we obtained through Freedom of Information a copy of ICBC's internal policies when it comes to approving requests for medical cannabis. And so if you go to bcinjurylaw.com, I've published them all for you to see so you don't have to go through the weight and hassle that we went through to get your hands on this. But in short, if you have... Uh, pharmaceutical cannabis, something with a drug identification number, uh, it's a lot easier to get approval. If we're talking about getting dried cannabis, oil, creams, or edibles, 
Uh, ICBC does make you jump through a few more hoops, but if you go to bcinjurylaw.com, like I say, I've published the whole policy there, so check it out. But the short answer is if you are being prescribed medical cannabis, ICBC might be on the hook for the bill. Thanks. I feel like I like almost want to be in a car accident now so I can get ICBC to pay for my weed. <laughs> no, thanks. I'm <laughs> suffering enough pain from the car accident I was in a few years ago. My whole right side of my body, my arm and wrist and forearm are still sore. That's 2019. I know. I'm joking. I've been in enough car accidents. I don't need more. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, but Paul, it's time for my favorite time of the week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The reviews are in. This book has been a lifesaver. If you haven't bought a copy yet, I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to the pinpoint method, I feel like I now have concrete strategies I can employ for difficult situations. Published by LexisNexis, cross-examination the pinpoint method is an essential addition to your bookshelf. Order now. And this guy, this guy, I would could end up being my favorite ridiculous driver of all time. Yeah. So Brian Baker uh is alleged uh, I guess last Friday to have been driving drunk at the Lake of the Ozarks. So drunk in fact that when he parked his truck and got out he forgot to put the truck in park and put the emergency brake on. And he walked away from the truck, walked behind the truck, and the truck started to roll backwards. He had a passenger. Yeah, yeah. He had a pa- passenger was still in the vehicle. So the passenger is trying to jump into the driver's seat to try and stop the truck from rolling. But she is not successful. And Mr. Baker essentially drunk drives over himself. Manages to run himself over. Run himself over. Um, yeah. And he, he apparently suffered serious injuries, which, like, yeah. I mean, he got... Back, he was run over by a truck. What uh, happened to you? I was run over by a truck. <laughs> Who was driving? Oh, my God. Me. <laughs> but you know what the worst part? Is that the passenger who tried to jump into the driver's seat to stop the truck from running over him? Yeah. Also got charged with drunk driving oh now there's a necessity defense yeah if ever I, there was it's not entirely clear news story whether um uh whether there was in fact a a like uh charge on the basis of that or whether it was later driving that might have led to it but it doesn't matter two people same car truck yeah um, well, I don't know that's my favorite, but it's a pretty good ridiculous driver. That's for sure. Uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, if you watch videos on that comes across your, your, uh, TikTok or something like that, there's lots of times that people seem to manage to run over themselves or they forget to put their car in park and or their truck in park and it slides back down the ramp with their boat. Um, the, uh, <laughs> But a, a drunk driver driving over himself, well, that's a that's a new that's, one. That's a good one. That's a good one. My goodness. Well, thanks, Kyla. Okay, 
Well, that's our podcast. If you need to reach us related to a driving law issue, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.